Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. This is Doug Sherman, and I am here with my co-host, Chris. Hey, hey, guys. And today we have a very special co-host with us, Joshua Sherman, my son. Hello. Our episode today is a Q&A edition. We've, we've been, have been collecting questions from, from listeners for quite a few weeks, and they were starting to back up a little bit. So we have Josh here to be our question reader for the day. Okay. So the questions are going to cover every topic that we have published so far. I shall start. Let's hear them. Okay, from Allie, Jersey City in New Jersey. She says, Hi, you said in your Star Wars episode that it wouldn't be possible for the asteroid worm, actually a space slug called the Exogirth. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> Exogirth? 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 Mm. It's like Gorth, I guess? Exogorth. Yeah, oh, in, Gorth. Yes. In Empire do exist. But it was a silicon-based organism, and we don't know anything about the silicon-based life. I think suspending belief, as you said in the episode, and accepting the possibility of an exogorth existing <laughs> is reasonable. Do you agree? And would that change your conclusions? What were our conclusions? I'm kind of trying to go back here. Uh, I tell you, the one thing I do remember is when we were doing those episodes, I think on two or three occasions, <laughs> we said... We really hope somebody was sitting out there calling us an idiot and oh, yeah, going to send in the, well, you don't know because you never read book yeah. seven, chapter five. Yeah, I feel like I've had that, that sen- sentiment happen to me often. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally don't know, you know? Yeah, I mean. So we talked about going into the asteroid belt, and I remember distinctly that we said that the asteroid belt itself wasn't plausible unless it had recently formed because they were quite large and they were very close oh, yes, uh, yes. in close proximity. I did mention that they flew into the cave, which was actually apparently the the hole for the exogorth, and a, a new word for me. Yeah. And don't think that we actually doubted the ability of such a creature to exist. If we did, yeah, well, so to answer your question, no, um, yes, we can suspend disbelief yeah, totally. to, to the extent to, uh, I, I would love to understand or to see an artist rendition or a movie uh, with silicon-based life instead of some kind of carbon-based life form. Uh, so, and, and it's possible. We, we have a, I think we're biased as humans that what, 90% of the aliens that we see in movies, if not more, are all uh, anthropomorphic. Yeah, they have two legs, two arms, a head. Yeah, and are also carbon-based. They're carbon-based. They probably have DNA. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of life out there you know, exists besides carbon-based life form and silicon-based life form? Yeah, I think we have to give that as much of a consideration as, as for what we understand today. I think when we presume that it will be carbon-based anthropomorphic, it's a bit of, little bit of human hubris in that assumption. Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, good question. Uh, good comment. Yes. So, to answer, yes, we can. <laughs> we suspended disbelief throughout that entire um, series of movies. Uh, we can do it for the exogore. Oh, I do remember now. Yeah. We... It wasn't the existence of the worm. It was Han and Leia stepping out of the Falcon oh, with just the to, little mask on their face. Yeah, being able to exist in the environment there. In the vacuum of space. Without any, like, spacesuit or anything? Yeah, that was another one that I was, like, they only kind of, like, harping on was the vacuum of space thing in Star Wars. Yeah, because they, they stepped out and they only, it was in, that was an Empire, wasn't it? 
uh, yeah, the, with the exogorth, the exogorth, the worm, the um, the like worm, the planet eater thing. Yeah. yeah. It was the worm that lived um, in the asteroid cave um, that they flew the Falcon into to hide from. Yeah, I think it was because that's when they escaped from Hoth, and then eventually that's when they ended up on the. Correct. Uh, they yeah. were they were escaping from Hoth. Yeah. So to that point, though, we had said you you had asked a question. It's all coming back. Could there be an atmosphere inside the worm? And I think my response was something along the lines of, well, if there wasn't an atmosphere in the asteroid or around the asteroid in the, in the vacuum of space, then it wouldn't exist inside the worm either. And we can't imagine what silicon-based life would be, so maybe they could generate their own internal atmosphere. Maybe. Yes, we can suspend disbelief. As the, and thank you for that, because I had never heard of an exogorth before, and we'd love the comments from our fellow nerds and geeks out there, our oh, yeah. Star Warsians and Trekkians. Yeah, I mean, if you guys already know the answer, too, and it's like, actually, it's uh, this exogorth, you know, blah, 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 it could survive or whatever. Cool. Um, I didn't know, but maybe now I do. Now we do. Okay. Good question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, good question. All right, Josh. Good one. Next. So next, from no name and no location. Okay. You are wrong. That's a good start. In your <laughs> yes, God <we> episodes. <laughs> in you are wrong. In your God mm-hmm. episodes that he killed forty-two children. The Bible says that those bears mauled the children, which just meant scratch or hurt. He didn't kill any children. It was God's just punish- punishment for them trying to stop Alicia, and he could have done he could have done worse, but he didn't. Oh yeah, we're calling him Elisha. Elisha? Yeah, Elisha is the uh, prophet that took the mantle of Elijah after he was called up into the clouds by God. Yeah, on a previous um, podcast episode on Oh God, um, we had a uh, a guest on, um, author Peter James, um, and him and Doug were debating this topic quite a bit, and they were going in kind of like a, a circular fashion where I guess they just eventually agreed to disagree. <laughs> for reference, for those that did not listen to that episode, he is referring, who was the, oh, no name. So I can't, he, she, they uh, are referring to 2 Kings 2.23, 2.24, the Old Testament. And in that verse, it says that Elisha was on a mission from God heading to Bethel, and a group of young children came out on the street and taunted him. They called him Baldy. In some verses of the Bible, they said, go up, go up. Uh, but whatever the case, Elisha, as I mentioned, being a bit of a snowflake, got all upset, turned around, cursed them in the name of God, and God sent forty. God sent two she-bears to attack and maul the children. My point to James was, is how could God kill 42 children simply because they upset Elisha's sensitivities? But turns out we are wrong. He didn't kill them. He just messed them up real good. Yeah, that's what it says here. So we were wrong about the detail. Okay, so... I would debate that point simply because there are 54 versions of the English Bible. And if you look at 2 Kings 2.23-2.24 in all 54 versions, which I happen to have done, and I've done this for quite a few verses. I I go to a website, I believe it's BibleGateway.com. You can look up a verse, and then underneath it gives you the option to see all English verses, all all English versions, I I should say, um, right underneath one another. 
and you can go down and see the differences in the context and the verbiage used in each of the verses. I did that on multiple occasions for this specific verse um, based on what Chris said because of my debate with, with James on the immorality of God. So in this case, some of the verses do say maul. Now, maul could mean scratch and injure. It could also mean kill. There are plenty of other verses in other Bible in other Bibles which don't say maul. They say ripped to pieces or torn to shreds or torn asunder or tore up or ripped up. Or maimed or so all of those verses and I don't know, you know, where the where the question caller was writing from, but where I'm from, if somebody is ripped to pieces, torn up, torn to shreds death usually is involved in that process. Not too many humans are ripped apart and survive. <laughs> you might have a version of the Bible, of one of the English versions, that says mauled. But go look at the other verses, or the other versions, because plenty of them, and in fact more, uh, say that the children actually were killed. So we have. this is one of the problems that I've had with, with James and going back and forth with emails, is the devout tend to cherry pick which version of the Bible they want to use based on the meaning they want conveyed from the verse. In the moment that they're trying to make meaning. Right. And you can go from one version to another and convey different meanings from that verse. Maybe you should just read all 54 and average it out and go from there. I don't have anything else to add to that. I got nothing. I got nothing. I got yeah. nothing. <laughs> um. I'm going to do the next one. Then. All right. Thanks. Josh. Awesome. Thank you, sir. First, from Samantha M. Ethic. How would I pronounce it? Ethica? Let's see. Oh, Ithaca. Ithaca, Ithaca, Ithaca okay. New York. Yeah, Ithaca, New York. Hi, Doug and Chris. I was shocked to hear that Pakistan and India had 100 nuclear weapons, but I felt a little better hearing that they were much smaller than uh, other countries' weapons. I know that any nuclear war would be terrible, but if bombs dropped on Japan in World War II were also small and didn't have any effect on the entire world, why is a nuclear war between India and Pakistan a global concern? I'm not an expert in nuclear weapons and don't understand the cause of the concern. Besides, a lot of people are dying. Besides a lot of people dying. Yeah. There's yeah, there's a, that's, a big, uh, that's a big one there. Um, yeah, why indeed? <laughs> So the answer to that is, is it's a very good point, first off, and, and to just align myself a little bit with, it was Samantha? Yes, Samantha. It, I was also surprised when I learned that they had 100 nuclear warheads. In fact, they actually have 150. Um, I believe it's India has 80 and Pakistan has 70. The 100 number that we gave was based on a an analysis of what would be the global ramifications of a limited launch of 100 nuclear warheads uh, between India and Pakistan. I did also feel better when I saw that they were all 15 kilotons. I won't say only 15 kilotons because 15,000 tons of TNT is a big boom, Yeah, <laughs> no matter how you dice it. The difference is, is at the end of World War II, the United States dropped two bombs. So it was... Uh, Fat man and little boy, each 15 kilotons, and that was it. There, there were no additional bombs dropped. There is a cumulative effect to the 
impact on the environment. Meaning one that builds up over time. Or one that builds up over, so each bomb injects a little bit of soot into the atmosphere. If you have a hundred of those bombs, so let's back up, if you have two of those bombs, some level of soot is ejected into the atmosphere. But that's it, and it's limited. If you have a hundred bombs, the cumulative effect of that works out to about eight billion tons eight million tons sorry eight million tons of soot ejected into the atmosphere that's what has the global effect so each bomb does a little if there are a hundred of them it adds up and it creates uh the the global repercussions of a limited exchange between india and pakistan hmm, interesting okay good yeah. question good yeah. thought <laughs> yeah okay so from nacy macy nor norfolk virginia Hi, ID team. From your red pill slash boob blue pill episode, how did you just say boob? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I hope I didn't. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> how would someone be able to distinguish between truth and reality? Isn't reality nothing more than what we accept as true? No, I think they're different. Uh, you know, reality. Hmm. Reality is kind of like place. Truth is kind of like what is real but <laughs> um this is a nice thought let could, me let me step back for a minute while he does that can this. you read that last part of that question what was the the brunt yeah. of the question okay the, the, yeah the i can crux. just i can just read the whole thing again since it's pretty short hi id team from your red pill slash blue pill video how would someone be able to distinguish between truth and reality isn't reality nothing more than what we except it's true that's a brain twister it's a brain twister yeah. and it, it brings you into your brain you know for <laughs> it, it pulls your mind into your brain or maybe it's the other way around <laughs> pulls your brain into the mind and uh well let's wax philosophical here yeah. because truth this goes back to a lot of our episodes we have objective truths and subjective truths so with a with a subjective truth you tend to have a belief that you hold and hold to be true because it is something that you want to be true. Yeah. Or something that maybe you have been taught your entire life that comes from your social network, your family, your environment. And there's not a lot of external objective empirical data that you have weighed against that to sway your belief. So what you just, I would describe that as your reality. It can be, yes. And then an objective truth. But is your reality true? Is it? So true is like, it's true is like more universal. Sorry, I'm just like brainstorming on top of your thoughts here. No, it's pretty deep. Yeah, it, it, is. it is because true, well, it also gets into what is reality. And I've, I've listened to um, more than a few philosophers and psychologists actually debate this one topic on okay. what is real. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like the consensus uh, was primarily something along the lines of reality is what your brain perceives based on external stimuli that you are subjected to in the environment in which you exist or, re or residing at the time. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I like that. And it's also something that can be somewhat evidenced to a degree. So if you see this table here in front of me, is it real? I, I'm getting 
you know, photons are hitting my eyes that are reflected off the table that are giving me the shape and the design. And from what I was taught, it appears to be a table. You can touch it. I can reach out my hand and touch it, and it confirms that what my you know, my my visual input is, uh, you know, receiving from external stimuli is aligned with what you know my my sense of touch can confirm. Mm-hmm. It's also considered to be real if Chris and Josh sitting next to me both look down and say, yes, it appears to be a table, and they feel it and say, yes, I can touch it. It also feels to be a table. So we have a consensus there to that point. Yeah. And that point at, at that point, I think we could guarantee or we could objectively say what we see is real in its existence it is true it's or true. our belief in that is true. Yeah, that sounds good too. That's why I like those ghost movies when someone here screaming they're just like did you hear that and the and, other no, and nobody else heard it or or, or somebody they, somebody can hear it and they can't see it there's also there's movies like that where you know one person can see something that others can't yeah so and nobody believes them but that one thing that the one person can see is going around and i don't know biting off the heads of everyone so yeah. it's real but you know consensus wasn't reached and yeah but so i don't believe in the supernatural so it, it wasn't true in all the realities <laughs> yeah Hmm. I think I think we answered that. So the the question basically was is what is the difference between truth and reality? Yeah, pretty that's kind of what it seemed like to me. Yeah, I don't. I'm almost my head is almost split into is this an apples and oranges thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a truth and reality. Well, I guess you could say you know does this really exist? And the truthful answer to that is yes, this table does exist. Well, I guess so. truth could mean like what you think is real, and reality is what is real. That's actually a very good point, because then we're into the subjective versus objective. I'm going to go into my cloud atlas thing, but then what's true, true? Yeah, what's double true? Yeah, you know, because like, it's like true to you, but... We're going down the matrix wormhole yeah. here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm, I, it's good, but we must to, move on. To an ex- yes, <laughs> but to an extent, I would, I would also just add to that and say, at some point, we, as long as we're thinking and trying to reason rationally and objectively, we have to accept something as true if it fits, you know, a subset of criteria or or, or real. You know, we can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it. Others around us can also see, touch, and taste. They might have slightly different sensations of, you know, taste and touch, but at that point, we just have to objectively accept it and move on. Otherwise, we're going to end up you know, sitting on the full floor contemplating a, a hairball that we see in front of us for you know, the next 72 years of our life until we're dead. And, yeah. <laughs> and then the only reality that's left is um, we're dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, smash the Beatles. That's right. Smash the, yeah. yeah pick up, <laughs> throw the hairball away, move on with life. Well, back to the thing with the what is real, people can be able to see, like, for example, that could be red someone on someone else could be seeing red but on our eyes it's black oh sure so like they call red black and they call different colors and so on like red and black so how do you know if we meet eye to eye you know so chris brought this point up oh i don't know a couple episodes ago that where you said something along the lines of it's too bad we can't see through the eyes of other people. Yeah, yeah. And then it was interesting that you brought that up because it was shortly after that I, I read a book um, by Richard Dawkins. And that was one of the comments that he had made was we 
will never be able to see through someone else's eyes. For example, if, and exactly like Josh said, if they see the sky as blue and we see the sky as blue, but if we could see it through their eyes, it would look red right? instead of blue. So but what they see as red, the, the terminology or the word, the, the definition for that is, you know, the word blue. So there's no way to really know. No, there's not. Now, now we know enough with, you know, doing, you know, spectronomy and, you know, we can do a spectrum analysis and see the wavelength and the frequencies. And we know that the frequency for blue that's bouncing off of a, of a object we've determined to be blue is the same as it, you know, it, the wavelength is the same as it enters your eye as it is when it enters my eye. Oh, see, there you go. I so mean, we know that for a fact, but what we don't know is how does your brain interpret that signal hmm, once yeah. it enters? Yeah, tr- sure. Interesting. Yeah. There's a, a great program that I used to watch, uh, 30 Rock, really funny um, comedic stuff. And uh, there was like a little bit where it was... It, Jack Donaghy says, oh, Tracy, if only I could see through your eyes or through Kenneth. And uh, one of them sees everybody like as Muppets. And another <laughs> one sees them as like cartoons and stuff. And, you know, right now I've got you guys coming in super high def 3D, you know, but like maybe to other people, you know, it's 8-bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we have, uh, we have, yeah, Super Nintendo Josh over there. So <laughs> 16-bit. All right, we're good. Let's go to the next one. That was a good question. Very interesting and mind-twisting. Okay. So, from Troy Boy, Alexander City in Alabama. Hey, Chris and Doug. Y'all, y'all, I'm going to just read it in English. Yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can drop the Alabama accent. (laughs) Okay, Chris and Doug, you have said a couple of times that you don't want to Trump hate, and then you go on ahead and bash him. Why don't why don't you just say what you really want to do when you're bashing him? Bit confusing. That's the question. Yeah, I guess. I think what he's referring to is there's been a couple episodes. Um, thank you for your question, Troy boy. That and I the the first one was, I believe the twenty the Second Amendment, the twenty seven words where I'd mentioned that you know this was not going to uh, turn into a Trump bashing session, but just to put in context what it felt like for the colonists in late 18th century America to be living under a, a tyrannical regime, I pointed to a potential threat that arose in December 18th of 2020 in a meeting between Donald Trump and I believe it was Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani along with some of his staff. I know Pat Cipollone was in there, uh, as well as a few others. And during that meeting, there was a very heated uh, debate and argument over the possibility of the president declaring martial law, suspending the Constitution, suppressing the media, sending out forces to seize ballot voting uh, machines and ballot boxes, and then reholding an election under uh, supervised by the military. I did that in reference to a thought experiment. That was a factual event that happened that's not in dispute. It was not Trump bashing. If you consider that to be Trump bashing, then obviously you don't like what the president did. <laughs> and then you should hear what I say off microphone, which I guess you just asked for, but there was no, another, man, it's, it's, it's just too bad. Uh, there was another mm-hmm. one in nuclear weapons where we were talking around the, th- the, th- the threat that existed uh, between world powers and anybody that any country that held nuclear weapons. 
and Trump after he was um, this was this is after he was out of office. So I believe that was in March or April of this year of 2022, where he said that if he was president, he would threaten the Russians with a nuclear launch. And he would do that by telling them that he was sending all of our ballistic missile submarines to scurry up and down the coast of Russia, and that if they didn't act up, he might launch nuclear weapons. That, again, is not in dispute. That was something that President Trump said. I also think that kind of carried on into, he made the comment about painting Chinese flags on F-22s and bombing the shit out of Russia. That was a quote. And that kind of digressed into him at one point thinking F-35s were completely invisible. That was in reference to, again, the context of the podcast where we mentioned the concern over nuclear weapons and the people that held their finger on the button of those weapons. I don't think that was bashing. Yeah. Well, I'll bash Troy here or whatever his name is. I Troy think Boy. I think you already lost him, man. You know, he, he probably didn't hear a word you just said. <laughs> okay, well, let me just close with it. Because if, if we wanted to bash Trump, I have plenty of, inform- of references that we could use to bash Trump, which we don't bring up arbitrarily. But I will bring up one thing. There are three common threads in any authoritarian regime around the world and throughout history. Oh, where are they? The first one is that they try, to con- they try to circumvent constitutional restrictions on their power. They do not like having any limits on oh. their power. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a surprise. I mean, I, I thought that you know, it would be the other way around where you know, they were all about sharing their power. I mean, that doesn't sound anything like the Trump uh, thing that we just had. No, I mean, Trump did everything that he could while in office to circumvent constitutional restrictions on his power. Mm. That, was, that was one of his day-to-day activities. The second thing that's in common amongst all authoritarian regimes, they will denounce an attempt to overturn elections that they lose. We saw that in 2020. No, I, I didn't see that, man. No? No. Okay, uh, no. It, it was, we'll it, have to discuss this offline. any of the news channels. Uh, Okay, yeah, and I'm sorry, Troy Boy. Maybe I'm maybe I'm you know being a bit biased here, but the third one is that they attempt or succeed to use the military and federal police as a personal police force. I'm off base there too, am I? You know, I as I understand it from all of my buddies that are Trump supporters is that as long as we keep licking his boot, we're going to be safe and fine. I remember an incident where there was a peaceful protest going on at Lafayette Square and he had the military go out and tear gas him so he could walk across the street and stand in front of a church and hold a Bible with his somebody just smeared baby shit under my nose look on his face. Wow, that is a Jesus worshiping humanitarian right there. I think I'm deluded. Yeah. <laughs> Good question, Troy Boy. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for submitting that. Okay, next, next, next one. Well, not next, 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 just next. Um, <laughs> from Francis Fanboy, F- Fremont, California. So, this one's a long one. <clears throat> Hello, fellow nerds. I'd like to enlighten you on the ways of the force. Electromagnetic mm. force, that is. I already oh, like this yes. one. Yes. First, it was The Last Jedi. Second, the MG-100 Star Fortress doesn't rely on gravity to drop its bombs. Instead, they are impelled by electromagnetic plates and ejected into space through bomb doors. Once in space, they'll continue on their course through space until they interact with another object. In this case, the First Order Dreadnought. 
The bombs also have magnetic attractors that hmm. that pull them towards their targets awesome. as they close in. Boom. That's where yeah, they explode. This, this was the, the open space thing. Yeah. It and, was. Yeah. And there's gravity on the Star Fortress because Rose's sister, Paige, falls on the scene as does the drop bombs controller. But that's not how the drops the bombs drop. No clue why she sucked out into space through the open door. Star Wars magic dude. Uh, Love uh, it. <laughs> keep up keep the SW up. So you're right. There's no clues to why she was sucked out into space. Or was it wasn't sucked out into space. Or wasn't sucked. What, what did <laughs> yeah. you say? It was um, Star Wars yeah. magic. Yeah, Star Wars magic. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. These are the kind of questions we want to get. Yeah. Well, I mean and it's I, not uh, even a question, it's it's us being um, Schooled. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Schooled in the Star Wars lore. I love it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the electromagnetic force part thing, too. I mean, that's like one of the things about Star Wars that I love so much is just the attention on the force and now more specifically electromagnetic force, yeah. um, even though it's just illusion. But now we're talking about it specifically. And um, yeah, that's the seat of God in my book, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's actually, it's, and I'm sorry, I think my micro, I don't know if my microphone's cutting in and out, but. No. The, yeah, it's just, he said it was an MG 101 Star Fortress? Or, MG 100 Star Fortress. MG 100, that's yeah. awesome. I didn't know that either. <laughs> so, all right, they have electromagnetic impellers that force the bombs out through the door it's not gravity that's pulling them that's cool that makes and then sense. they continue on their path until they approach a metallic object and magnetic plates pull them towards that object that's cool that is really cool and then yeah. we have to suspend disbelief on the opening of the bombay doors and not getting sucked out into space god i mean i didn't even think about the gravity part of that whole scene but that that's pretty cool. <laughs> That's funny because when I saw that scene for the first time, my very first thought was the gravity. The gravity, part. yeah. <laughs> it was why are bombs falling in space? Yeah. Why, but that explains a lot. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting is on the newer aircraft carriers, they're using more and more electromagnetic devices. Mm. Uh, one of the things that in the newer the new um, carriers that that are being recently launched is the weapons, when they raise them up to the deck to be loaded on the planes, it's done with an electromagnetic elevator. Wow. That's that cool. raises That raises them up. And wow. it, can, cool. it can do it quite quickly. You know, several thousand pounds of bombs just wow. shooting right on up. Wow. So it could definitely push the bombs out because it, it just has to give them a little bit of nudge and keep on going. Well, yes, yeah, since it pulls them to... The metallic part, anything metallic. Yeah, well, it sounds like I, I'll have to read up on this. Uh, obviously, what was his name? Um, Francis Fanboy. Fanboy, you're awesome. It, it sounds like he knows a hell of a lot more about this than than I do. But I'm gonna have to go look at it. it yeah, once they hit open space, a device is going to keep on going in the direction that it was in, propelled indefinitely until it's acted upon by another external force or object. But with a magnetic plate in the bomb, that's they should have made more notice of that in the movie because that's just cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, totally. I have one thing because if they if they're attracted to like metallic mag- and they're like use their mag- te- magnetic things to connect to any ma- metallic thing, 
when it was being launched out of the ship, why didn't it connect straight to the ship? Okay, so that's actually a good point. It's probably something that's done similar. I am inserting a, a subjective belief into this. So in a submarine, for example, when submarines fire a torpedo, that torpedo will hunt for another, tor- um, another submarine. So the question is, is you know, why doesn't it spin around and blow up the sub that it was just launched from? One of the things is they, they're not armed until they reach a certain distance from the submarine. Then they will actively start pinging and looking, and the ping is actually sending out a pew, and it picks up the, the sonar wave, the, the reflecting wave back, and will guide itself towards an enemy submarine. But it doesn't actually arm itself until it has traveled X amount of distance to do that, mm. and that's something that's adjustable. Hmm. Okay. Good yeah. question, though. That makes sense. Okay, should I go on to the next one? All right, thank yeah, you, right. Francis. Um, we need more questions like that. Yeah, very good question. Okay, from Lanny B. Us Trekkies gotta know what what was up in the with the red shirts. Hmm. There must have been some serious contractual disputes with those poor no name guys, because I think they killed off most of them in the first two minutes of each episode. Since you focused on plausibility, how likely is it that the shirt color would be directly related to the probability of death on the interplanetary mission? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, red is is a very attractive color, you know, so you got a group of guys there, you know, who are you going to laser blast first? Subconscious factors happen in an instant. You know, maybe you blast the red guy because you just see him first. This was in Star Wars, right? Star, uh, Star Trek. Star oh. Trek. Yeah, we did an episode on sci-fi science, part one and part two. In part one, we covered Star Wars. Yeah, I watched it. In part two, we covered um, Star Trek and the Expanse. And in the Star Trek episode, yeah, we, we listed the plausibility of things. We did not cover redshirt probabilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so me being a geek and a, and a fellow Trekkie, yeah, I, that's a thing. Like it is a thing. <laughs> I looked this up years ago, and I'm not going to remember the percentages. So I actually researched this back probably ten years ago on the probability of of dying in an episode if you were wearing a red shirt. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> it turns out that red shirts, while they did die in the highest quantity uh-huh. of any color shirt on the show. They were not the most probable to die based on their shirt color. Okay. The one, the yellow shirts died in a higher percentage of total yellow shirt personnel appearing on the show. And usually the yellow shirts in the old Star Trek were uh, captains and admirals. Okay. So there weren't as many. But when there were, you had a higher percentage chance of being killed than a red shirt. Interesting. And this is in Star Trek, just Star Trek, like not Next Generation. No, this is in yeah. the the original Star the original, Trek, where gotcha. the whole the whole concept of you know red shirts dying all the time. Because yeah, I had heard that, and I was never sure. And so I, I I never saw the the first series. I saw Next Generation, and I had that thought in mind, and I and I never saw it. And I was like, what are they talking about the red shirts? And Riker's got a red shirt, and blah, blah, like yeah, no. It's, so, in, in the original episodes. The red shirts tended to be all of the security personnel, all of the engineering personnel. So there were a lot of red shirts. Gotcha. There okay. were a lot. And the percentages, and, sorry, uh, it's just, um, 
it's based off of their numbers. So say the total that, number of red shirts yeah. that appeared in the show, gotcha, compared relative to the number that died, is actually lower than the number of yellow shirts that died relative to the number that appeared in the show. I see. So, in another words of saying, it's like say there were a hundred red shirts, but like twenty of them died, but there were twenty yellow shirts and. 19 of them yeah, died. Not, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. So fewer yellow shirts died, but they died in a higher rate. Yeah, gotcha. Now, in, so the blue shirts, actually, you were the safest. And the blue <laughs> cool. shirts, uh, Spock wore a blue shirt. Yeah. Uh, there weren't a, uh, the, doctors, the doctors, the doctors yeah. wore a blue shirt. There weren't a lot of blue shirts on the show, but very, very few of them died. I think it was like 9%. Yeah, they're the cool guys that would just disappear into the walls and you wouldn't see them but then red was just right there in your face kablam yeah and I'm, I'm again i'm going to get the percentages wrong somebody you know correct us for the next q a session uh, the red shirts i believe it was 29 percent of the red shirts died mm. but it was somewhere around 40 percent of the yellow shirts whoa it was yeah, just that's... a much lower number yeah yeah good question awesome Fun. but speaking of star trek we all got to rewatch the um the normal first the original yeah the original yes yes yeah we've been talking about that yeah we need to do that while you're here definitely do that all right before we carry on to the next one let's take a break get a refill go tinkle tinkle okay we'll do tinkle all right all right (laughs) let's pause that's it all right I think we're back. We are back. Okay, hey, hey, I see the timer going. Good. Time has been resumed. Yes, time has been resumed. So two seconds for the podcast, 10 minutes for us. Maybe a bit more. We are time lords. Yes. <laughs> All right. Mr. Josh, would you like to go to the next question? Okay. From Mr. No, Mrs. Mr. They. Um, no name. And no location. Hi, ID. I can't imagine that we will ever invent computers with the ability to run simulations detailed enough to fool humans living in a simulation for very long. So, like, you can't fool people into living in a, to a simulation? Read that question again. Okay. Yeah, I got, I got a bit confused on that, too. Okay. Hi, ID. I can't imagine that we will ever invent c- computers with the ability to run simulations detailed long enough to fool the humans living in a simulation for very long. Got it. I'm also not sure if we will ever fully map the human brain or learn how to connect it to a computer or, or to upload it and download information. Since we're not close to doing any of that today, how could we be living in a simulation? And why wouldn't we live forever in a simulation? There's no need for death. It's right up your alley, Christopher. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. I admittedly had a chance to preview that question uh, ahead of time and have already thought, too, that so a simulation lasting forever, it's going to require maintenance. You know, like anything, parts need to be replaced, whatever they are, Um, you know, because of, like, all all matter, all particles have, like, a half-life. Eventually they... Well, there's also entropy things. Entropy. They eventually run out, you know. um, Everything runs out. Yeah, that's why suns and stars need to keep booming and make more new things. You know, it's always recycling. Um, But, you know, also computers, as we understand it, are made out of um, really 
coarse materials like metal um, and uh, and and circuitry with uh, copper and um, metals. You know, metals, lots of hard stuff. You know, but maybe there could become something that's a little bit more organic in the future, where uh, you know it's it's liquids that are moving over one another, and the friction from the liquids, you know, creates the surges of power that are required to operate a computer and maybe that's how like the brain works or something. Um, just because we don't know now doesn't mean the answer isn't out there somewhere. Um, and a way I could see a simulation working, you know, even outside of just computers, you know, we could run scenarios and simulations just on people uh, that might not even be aware that they're in an experiment. Um, you know, it's like a small scale, uh, one of those, or, you know, like my, my imagination just goes on fire with this type of stuff. Cause, uh, you know, who's to even say that being inside my human body is where my consciousness is. Um, you know, uh, maybe, maybe I just am in a computer and I, and it's a hard computer that's like rudimentary with the circuitry that we don't understand, but I just don't know it. And, I'm perceiving myself as having an organic body, but really I'm just like a spark in a computer in a moment of the great infinity. You know, I don't really know. Um, Matrix vibes. But I like this question. It's pretty cool. Um, that's my response. <laughs> it's giving me the Matrix tingles. <laughs> I think her first question or her first comment, maybe it was, didn't, didn't it start off with, I don't think we will ever invent computers with the ability to run simulations because we don't have anything like that today yeah and we won't be able to fool humans into a simulation for very long okay so let let me let me stick to those two because i'm gonna have to take this in bites so with the first one when we when we did the when we did the red pill blue pill episode we talked about the different scenarios or the the different possible reasons why somebody would create a simulation yeah like historical uh, uh an ancestor analysis. simulation yeah, yeah. Uh, for historical analysis yeah. or political stuff to pre- and ways to predict the future and so that's that would be my answer to the first one if we're in an ancestor simulation we don't have to be anywhere near creating that computer because we could be 10 millennia or more behind where the actual programmers were when, the when they when happens. they wrote the computer yeah. or when they wrote the program so that that would be the basis of an ancestor simulation is that you would create a simulation that would go back as far in evolution as possible and then you analyze how that program or that or those artificial life forms within the program evolve over time and what might happen in 10,000 years in our life might actually be a few hundred programming cycles in the real world. Yeah. So maybe only a few nanoseconds or microseconds or milliseconds pass in, in that period of time. What we would perceive as time in our technological advancements would not be relative to where we actually were in the real world. Mm-hmm kind of like waking from a dream you know where you're like you have this dream and you write you know the greatest novel of all time and you know you get all the awards and it's just like wow you live this real long full life and then you wake up and you're like oh shit gotta go to work 
Yep. <laughs> right. So we, we would have no idea. Well, in fact, we probably would never, as we also covered in the episode, um, we would never have an idea that we were in a simulation in the first place. Yeah. But even if we could detect that we were in a simulation, we would have no idea at which era of the program we existed within that simulation. How many millennia or eons ahead of us are there remaining in that simulation until we reach T equals zero and are in parallel and aligned with our creators? That would be the answer to the first question. The other is you know, mapping the brain being uploaded uh, into a computer. If we're a simulation, that wouldn't be necessary because we're a pure digital construct. We're, you know, we're, we were not biological organisms uploaded into a computer, um, as would be seen in the matrix. We're just digital constructs that the program created, and off we go. Hmm. Well, what if that's, like, for example, like for generations, generations, people are, like, creating different simulations, and in those simulations, people are creating other simulations where, like, we are in. Then in the future, we're going to put people in simulations, and then that's how, like, we keep living on, sort of. So you have actually touched into a topic where PhD philosophers and physicists have discussed on many different occasions on if a ancestor simulation is created, at some point in the timeline of that program, they are going to reach a technological threshold to where they can create simulations. And then you have a simulation within a simulation. You have an inception situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that simulation does the same thing, and you end up with layers upon layers upon layers of simulations. It's and maybe that is the multiverse. It's, it's fractals. You know, it's repeating patterns, but in various sizes. Cool. So what was the next question after that? Because she, she actually, or he, they, I should say, um, sh hammered us with a couple questions. So that was the upload and we're nowhere near. Yeah, and... Um, it will never be detailed enough to fool humans into living in a simulation for very long. Good point. So say we're living in a simulation and it's being monitored and a Stephen Hawking's version 2.0 comes out and he and his colleague define and come up with a way to determine whether or not we live in a simulation. What is to prevent the program from rewinding three years, deleting that data, changing a few parameters and moving forward you sure. would never know that because you, you if we are living in a simulation we have made we may have been replayed a billion times yeah we don't know that well, that's why you get like these little glimpses you know and they touch on that in the matrix you know the deja vu the deja vu you know these weird little anomalies <laughs> where it's like deja vu is. is that just my brain tricking me you know yeah they change the code of the matrix you know or is it really you know like the matrix you know there's the, the word, there's, a, there's a wonderful thing. Um, I love it. it. I think it's from WandaVision, you know, because uh, the world doesn't revolve around you. Or does it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. I'm not Christian, so I can't say. Mm. So was there any other questions in that? Did they, did they finish with? So that was also the how we would not. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a bit more. So, since we're not close to doing any of that today, how would, could we be living in a simulation? All right, that, I, think, I think we answered that yeah. one earlier when we said we, you know, we might still be considered 
an ancient civilization, more likely considered an ancient civilization mm-hmm. to the T equals zero personnel, that, that, to the T equals zero programmers. You know, I could kind of expand on that too. Like, so <laughs> I, I make so many movie references. That's, that's, I've seen too many movies, folks. That's nah, all good. Um, but there's this one called Eon Flux. Oh, with uh, Charlize Theron. Yeah, with Charlize Theron, and it was a it was a live action movie that was based off of an MTV series or a comic series, something like that. Um, anyway, their whole thing is they were kind of pseudo running simulations in this, um, and and I'll eventually I'll I'll get down the line here, folks. Um, what it was is uh, they were recloning people. And, and cloning people, society had somehow collapsed and they were existing in this utopian kind of scenario, but everybody was having these, these, these dreams of these past lives that were continuing to recur. And eventually they figure out that they're all clones and they keep getting recloned and they're having these like memories from, from their past lives that they've already lived and it goes it gets passed on through their genetics or something like that but um this is a way that you could you know run simulations that's not even like computer based but that's like more organically based you know and where i'm going with this like i travel a lot and i see so many different faces and eyes and like the same people like a lot like a lot um you know you eventually kind of see people's genetics and you're like wow that person looks just like so and so that I'm like best friends with but it's clearly not them and you take a picture and you send it to them you're like look at this person they're like whoa it's so weird they look just like me maybe their DNA is in some sort of like simulation where they live in Ohio and that's what their Ohio experience is like but then some of their other DNA lives in Texas and that's what that simulation looks like and you know is it a part of some grand supercomputer, you know, maybe, I don't know, but I'm just one of the chickens in the simulation. I'm not one of the masters of the simulation. No, it remind, <laughs> you just reminded me of our conversation during the existential threats of artificial intelligence, where we were talking about the benevolent dictator scenario. Oh, okay. Where yeah. there's the hedonistic <laughs> section and then the, 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 you know, the ultimate knowledge of physics section and then the, you know, all these different <laughs> sections of the simulation that we live in and that we can visit. And, yeah. <laughs> So, all right. So, and sorry you didn't send your name, um, but yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was a fun one. That was. Okay. Last page. Crinkle, crinkle. Pretty, yeah, crinkle. Is it the last? Yeah, that's the last page. Okay. From Calvin Jude Dude. Who? Calvin Jude Dude. <laughs> Calvin Jude Dude. Nice. All right, nice. <clears throat> Dudes. Oh, my God. It's... Thor's hammer. I can't pronounce it. Uh, Mjolnir. Yeah, Mjolnir. 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 Almost like meow, but it's Mjolnir. I it was like Mjolnir. Okay, if that makes you yeah. feel good, <laughs> say Mjolnir. 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 <laughs> it's French. <laughs> 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 it's made out of uru. Uru. That is awesome because we were trying to figure out what metal it was made out of. Yeah. Uru. Oh, sorry. Carry on. Okay. And it was made in a dying star, not from the material of a dying neutron star. If it was made from the material of a neutron star, it would have weighed equivalents of 300 billion elephants. Instead, it only weighed 42.3 pounds, <laughs> according to Marvel. 
Thor is the only one who can lift it because he's the only one that's worthy. Not because of how strong he is. Hulk is the strongest Avenger. Oh, boo. (laughs) (laughs) Baby arms. I I have been schooled. Small guy. That is awesome. So we talked about... Did I say that it was made from the material of a dying star when we talked about that? Or did I say that it was made in the heart of a neutron? So I may have said it was the material. And so he would be correct. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the specificity, but it was something to that tune. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. And he's... I don't know if he watched the same thing that I watched. So about three weeks ago, I was watching a YouTube video of Neil deGrasse Tyson, Chuck Nice, and Charles Liu at the New York Comic Con. Oh, cool. (laughs) And they were talking about all different kind of basically comic heroes, superheroes kind of things. And they got into Thor's hammer. And Neil deGrasse Tyson had estimated how much Thor's hammer would weigh if it was made out of the material from a dying neutrino, neutron star. Mm-hmm. And he could do that. He, he bought a replica of Thor's hammer. He figured out its volume. And then he calculated if it was made out of the material of a dying neutron star, which is one of the most dense objects in the, in the universe. Yeah. It would weigh the same as... A herd, oh no, as 300 billion herds of elephants. Whoa. Here it said 300 billion elephants. 300 billion elephants still. That's pretty yeah. heavy. Yeah. Charles Liu had made a comment that if it actually weighed that much and you stood on the surface of the planet, this, this cause it remi- I meant to tell you about this because it reminded me of your, where you didn't want a lightsaber because you were afraid you'd drop it. Yeah. <laughs> and it would go straight to the, to the, the core, core of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> what Charles Liu said is if you dropped it, it would be so heavy that it would just plow straight down through earth, through the core, out the other side until gravity caught it, and then it slowed down and then came back back oh my god and then just plowed through the (laughs) earth again and then it would just slowly shatter the earth as as the earth rotated through this destructive force of thor's (laughs) hammer (laughs) and then he corrected everybody and he had looked up marvel i guess marvel had released this i don't know decades ago and they gave the specifications on thor's hammer and that it had been made in the heart of a dying neutrino star, not from the material of a, ah, and yeah. that it actually weighed 42 point, what did he say? 42.3 pounds. Yeah. 42. Yeah. 42.3 pounds. And Thor was able to wield it because Odin had empowered it to only be wieldable by those who were worthy. Yeah. And that made a lot more sense because yeah. there were you know, the episodes of Thor carrying around this massive, super heavy hammer in, uh, in the Age of Ultron where they had it sitting on the coffee table. It's like, well, that hammer weighed that much. It would just <laughs> shatter everything. And so, Love it. <laughs> yeah, so this is awesome. That, and he's correct. We've been schooled. And especially, I think it was in the first Thor movie. I may be wrong. He was going, he went down. Um, from Asgard to Earth, and wasn't he not able to pick it up or something? For a time. He wasn't for a time because he had basically deemed, not deemed himself, he had acted in a manner that he was no longer deemed worthy to wield Mjolnir. So Mjolnir was in that crater out in the desert somewhere, 
and all the scientists were like building the the, the habitat, the tents around it, and yeah. they were trying to pick it up, and nobody could nobody could budget. Yeah, it was a bad movie. I, I it was entertaining, but yeah. it was yeah. They they didn't get their stride until a little bit later. No, cause he had no sense of humor in the first one. Yeah, very little in the second. Ragnarok, Thor took off. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yep. Wait, was Ragnarok after the second one? Yes. Yes, I believe oh. so. Yeah, that was the one with Thor and Hulk on the planet. Well, yeah, I remember Jeff that. Goldblum. Yeah, Sparkle Fingers. <laughs> and from Asgard. You were about to meet the Grand Master. <laughs> and it's just like it didn't. Wasn't there a part where he handed him the kill stick? Yeah, the melty stick. <laughs> Make the melty stick. No, not the melty stick. <laughs> All right, great, awesome. That was that wasn't Francis fanboy. That was that was Calvin Jude. Calvin Jude, dude. So we've had Francis fanboy and Calvin Jude, dude. We need to get these two guys together sometime <laughs> on the show. Heck yeah. Um, another part after Thor two, didn't he like go into the Avenger movie, or was he already in it before then? I don't remember the timeline. Uh, there's so much. Since the Avenger movie was definitely before Thor Ragnarok. Yes, it was. It was before Thor Ragnarok. It was before Age of Ultron. I don't. I don't remember if Thor the first movie came out before the. So I think Iron Man one came out, and then maybe it was the uh, so Captain America, mm-hmm. uh, the first Marvel, uh, the first Avenger, and then. Maybe it was Thor and then the Avengers movie. I'm going to have to look it up now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Thor. But Again, somebody's listening to this and yelling at us. Yeah, they're going to yeah. They're yelling at the radio. Give us the Q&A. Mm. Telling us, you're wrong. Yeah, that's fine. All right, great question. Thank you. And I, Well, not so much question. Thank you for the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next one from Zane. The Bible is clear and teaches us about hell, and if you refuse God's gift and Christ's sacrifice, one day you will wake up in hell. That's nice. Nice. That's lovely. Mm. Yes. Very lovely. Carry on. Read your Bible, repent, and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, or you would ascend into the fires in the lower parts of earth, as the Bible says. Do you want to tackle that one? So, I have woken up in hell before. Oh. Um, It's called working a job that you hate. Um, it's called a lot of things for a lot of different people. I've been to hell, um, go there from time to time. It's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. I, I don't know, man, or woman, or whoever. Uh, I, I hear you. Um, you're worried about my soul. But really, y- your message kind of comes from a place of, of fear and hate and not really love, you know? Um, so, uh, don't try and threaten me with hell. Um, I've been there. You should try it sometime because it really wakes up a person's perspective onto what heaven really is. And we're living it. It's really good to cultivate a nature of heaven and continue to exist in it and not go to hell because, you know, yeah, that place, it, it sucks. And, you know, you don't want to go there, but. Nobody does. Uh, you know, if it's a place that um, you end up from time to time, you know, there's there's a lot of great self-help stuff out there that uh, can help get you out of there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to... That's my, I'm, that's my next book. Yeah. How to Escape Hell. Yeah. Don't uh, wake up in hell. You know, and the teachings of Jesus, I, I, I have value in that. Um, 
you know, that, that can definitely be one of those self-help things. Um, but I will caution people, uh, you don't need to worship a piece of wood or a piece of paper. Um, if you want to worship something, you should fall to your knees and kiss the grass that you're standing on and hug a tree and be a total hippie about it because the planet Earth is who you want to save. You need to be Jesus and you need to save the Earth because uh, that, that's, that's what really needs to happen. Be your own Jesus. Be your own Jesus. Yeah, and I believe that's actually kind of one of Jesus' real tenets, too, is to not fall under prey to false ideologies, but to continue to cultivate heaven and not go to hell, um, kind of like you said. So that's, that's what I have to say. <laughs> He brought up something that's one of my biggest gripes against religion and forced belief in general. As human beings, as fallible, mental, <laughs> mentally flawed human beings, we have little or no control over what we believe. And if you don't understand or accept that, then do a little experiment. Think of something that you firmly believe in. Or think of something that you firmly disbelieve and then spend the next 30 days every day trying to convince yourself that what you believe isn't true or what you don't believe actually is true. And then at the end of 30 days, if your belief system has changed, yeah, maybe I'll give you some of that. But odds are you're going to believe exactly at the end of the month as you did at the beginning of the month. You, you believe what you believe. For the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, to say, you better believe, it, it's flawed logic. It, it's along the lines of Pascal's wager, which we discussed in the God's episode, which is basically saying that the, the ramifications of not believing in God are so high because of hell that you're going to go ahead and believe in them. But the fact is, is if that's the position that you take, you don't really believe in God. You are paying lip service to the term belief. And if there is a God, then he, she, or it, if they are powerful enough to create the universe and everything living within it, you can damn sure bet they're going to be able to tell whether you really believe or whether you're just paying lip service. And this is the problem with religion around the world is that I believe that most people who consider themselves to be devout, God-fearing people... They're actually full of shit. They're fearing God and believing, saying they believe as a result of that fear. It's not a true belief in love. It, and in fact, anybody who's read the Old Testament, it's hard to love that God. It, if, and if you want to get into the concept of hell, so hell was a translation from the Bible, the original text of the Bible, from the terms Tartarus, Hades, and Gehenna. Hmm. Gehenna was actually a valley. It was the Valley of Hinnom that's south of Jerusalem and was a place where the pagan kings prior to the Israelites settling the land where they would sacrifice children on occasion. After the Israelites conquered and settled Israel and Jerusalem, Gehenna was a, was, was a valley that you would descend down into, and there were fires burning there all the time. And then Jesus gave his speech of the Sermon on the Mount, which 
if you're that devout, you should know very well the Sermon on the Mount. And he referenced Gehenna, and it became symbolic of the place where when God returned his kingdom to earth, that would be the place where those he were, was displeased, <laughs> displeased with were sent. Mm-hmm. If you want to know where hell came from, that's where hell came from. You can thank the Catholic Church of Antiquity for that because they use that as a tool of fear to force compliance and obedience in the masses. Now, if you don't believe what I'm saying, fine. You have two options. You can either go out and find somebody that can help you become fluent in Koine Greek or Common Greek and read the Bible in its original untranslated version. Or you can go out and read the studies of biblical scholars who have done this for a living and who, for the most part, agree with what I just said. God would far more respect the logic of disbelief than he would out of blindfolded fear. It also drives me crazy is that I think most, not most, a large percentage of Christians believe or think or don't even think about it. They, they just automatically assume that the Bible was written in English. Oh, sure. No. It wasn't written in Latin or Sanskrit? Well, no, the original, the, the Old Testament was Hebrew Aramaic, and the, the New Testament was Koine Greek. It was mm. common Greek. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, so it had to be translated, which is why we have 54 different English versions of the Bible, because sure. it was translated mm. into, by different people at different times. And there's always something lost in translation, you know? But people don't understand that. I mean, it's apocryphal, but there's a common saying out there. And, and the first one that I, I believe it was, you know, first appeared in the 19th century, but was attributed to the governor of Texas in 1920 or 1930. Was the, the question was, what do you think about the Bible being translated into Spanish for Texas students? And this is when the Bible was still read in schools, in public schools. Hmm. And her comment was, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for Texas. Oh, Jesus. So, uh. now, now that's <laughs> apocryphal, but a lot of the devout think that it was written in English, and it's, it wasn't. People, there are translation um, inaccuracies that have to be accounted for. So, no, th- <laughs> thank you for your fire and brimstone question. You need to go do some research and enlighten yourself, actually, on the origins of the Bible. And again... Go out and read all 54 different versions of the Bible and, and then maybe go talk to a biblical scholar about the, the origins of hell and how they derived from Tartarus, Hades, and Gehenna. You might have a different perspective. I do appreciate that you care for my immortal soul, though. I also care for yours. Okay. Next. Next from Leo. Hi, guys. I read somewhere that NASA was involved in making the movie Armageddon. Is there anything from that movie... That would that could be done in real life to stop an asteroid before it hit the Earth. Keep looking up. <laughs> Since so is that if I'm gonna understand this, is that kind of what the movie was about? It was like showcasing us what is possible. Have you ever seen Armageddon? I've seen Armageddon. Yeah, Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck. Yeah, Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it like about or Buscemi like or Semi? Or stopping or something? A It's asteroid. about a huge asteroid heading towards Earth. And they stop it. They of course they do. Yeah. Liv mm-hmm. Tyler. Liv Tyler, yeah. In that Aerosmith song. So his question was, is since NASA was involved, is there anything in that movie that could be utilized? To stop an asteroid in real life? God, I hope so. Before it hit Earth. That would be cool if they made a movie out of that. So I don't know, but I did just watch this other movie last night, as a matter of fact, called Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio and this whole like all-star cast. Um, I think, yeah, 
all, all these people are in it. Um, and it's an asteroid film. It's a it's a satire um, on how you know we'd probably actually handle a real life scenario like that. And yeah, they have some scenarios. You know, they're pretty much like Armageddon, according to this. You know, where it's basically just blow it up, use nukes to try and defer it uh, or make it into smaller pieces. I guess. So, yeah, NASA was involved. This is something else I looked up some time ago. NASA was involved in the making of the movie, but they did not provide guidance on the science of actually destroying or deflecting an asteroid to, to uh, miss Earth. Mm. They, they gave guidance on training, on the processes. They had no influence whatsoever in the artistic license that was taken by the director and the producers oh, cool. in making the film entertaining. Mm -hmm. Nothing or very little of what was actually shown to be an effective deterrent from the asteroid is accurate or was recommended by NASA. We, we did the asteroid existential threat yeah. episode not too long ago. And that was that was one of the things where we discussed the various options that could be taken. And no, landing on the asteroid, drilling down, blowing it up into pieces is is not an option. And I I haven't seen Armageddon. I actually liked Armageddon. It was an it was one of those again. You really had to suspend disbelief, but it was humorous. It was entertaining. Yeah. But I think at the end it showed all the pieces burning up in the atmosphere. This this goes back to our asteroids episode is if, if it's larger than 30 meters, a lot of times it's still going to impact earth. And if you have a, yeah, I know this one was much, much bigger, but if you have like a 1 trillion ton object and you break it into a thousand, 1 billion ton objects and those strike earth, it's an extinction level event still, even yeah. though they're smaller. I mean, in a you know billion ton object smacking earth and then a thousand of those were gone yeah <laughs> so it's that yeah no it wasn't real but it was entertaining cool okay chris yeah this one is for you nice chad hey chris what's up what's up you talked about the guy that called you the n-word because you walked across the street in front of him while wearing a blue shirt racist people suck but why did he hate the blue shirt? Regardless, you seem pretty cool. So it's probably just a... Yeah, so, yeah, the blue shirt thing was just the only thing I could think of that was, like, the straw that broke that dude's camel... Or the straw that broke that camel's back that was that dude's mind. Because, yeah, I mean, we're just walking down the neighborhood street. All of a sudden... Run, 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 get that guy, you know, make a point to yell at him. And it's the only thing I could think of because blue is associated with the Democratic Party, which I am oh. not associated with. But this dude was driving a red truck, was a poor looking white dude, used the N word with hate behind it, you know, just kind of fit this description of a <clears throat> Trump supporter. He was the stereotype. Um, <laughs> Stereotypical. And, uh, and was just driving his truck towards me in the neighborhood with great haste and hate and rage. That's the only thing I think of is I was wearing a blue shirt. Uh, Sorry, man. Sorry. So but that's, that's all I got. Uh, I don't know why, but that's all I got. <laughs> well, I'll just say you're a better man. You're still pretty cool. <laughs> I can't no, remember so. what you mentioned that it might have actually been in the introduction episode, and you had said something along the lines like, I don't know what his problem was, but I was walking across the street, and he called me the N-word, and I was wearing a blue shirt, and 
when I did the audio and I listened back to that, my first thought was, what's the blue shirt got to do with it? Yeah. And I've been meaning to ask you that for months. Yeah. And I, keep, I, I never think about it That's until awesome. then. So awesome. Okay, I get it now. Yes. Yeah. You found out. <laughs> found out. Yeah. Inquiry minds. To the next one now? To the next one. Okay. Last one. No name. Hi, ID team. Are you going to do an episode on Roe being overturned and how the ruling might jeopardize our right to contracept and same-sex marriage? All right. I'm not sure I understood that. Me neither. Yeah. Can you repeat the question? Okay. Let me read it a bit slow. Okay. Hi, ID team. Are you going to do an episode on Roe being overturned and how the ruling might jeopardize our rights to contraceptives and same-sex marriage? Okay, so in Roe, he means Roe v. Wade, which was the constitutional right of a woman to make private health care decisions with her doctor, even if those health care decisions involved an abortion. The Supreme Court recently ruled against that and threw it down to the states. So now 22 states or something along those lines have immediately gone out and banned abortions. There's concern that this might also lead to the Supreme Court evaluating other substantive substantive due process cases, such as Griswold v. Connecticut, which was the right to contraceptions in a, in a case in the 90s, which uh, found same-sex marriages to also be a constitutional right. So the overturning of Roe could possibly lead to the overturning of the right to use contraception and the right to people to have same-sex marriages, basically returning us to the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Is The 50s um, are a really interesting time, really interesting time. Uh, well, well, yeah, I, I got to ponder some more of that, but um, it seems like people are not really focused on some of the right values that were becoming available to people during the 50s. They focused on really really dumb petty shit so there was lots of cool things happening back then but we're not in a renaissance of reliving the good stuff we're like reliving the hateful shit um well not all of us actually there's some of us are are ascending away from hell but uh some other people are really very desperately trying to make this world a living hell especially for those that are having their rights their civil liberties removed i mean not only not only their civil liberties but like actually the planet being on fire yeah Um, which is going to be interesting (laughs) because our next episode is on climate change yeah yeah so um yeah that's that's a weird one that that, that's kind of a that does kind of go into our next episode too because contraceptives and stuff like that it's a big topic, and I may need to come back to this, you know, and, and meditate. So do listen to our next episode because uh, there's a lot to the how the world like really works, and I don't have all the answers, but I'd like to think I'm a little clued into it. And uh, you know, there's reasons why people want the world to burn and to overpopulate. Uh, there's like a certain type of value to that. It's not one that is easily recognized or widely understood, but it's one that some people dive all the way into. Um, and I know I'm being really vague here, but uh, again, I gotta, I gotta meditate on this because I don't want to say something that's wrong or, or anything like that because uh, it is a real world problem. Um, anyway, I'm gonna kind of digress here. 
I would say that I'm I'm not sure we're going to do an episode on uh, Roe being overturned. I've I've been thinking about it. I I would say on the surface I disagree with the Supreme Court's ruling. I think they got it very wrong. Oh yeah. They you know they they did. It, there are a lot of penumbral rights, so implied rights that are given in a constitution within the Constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment did solidify a lot of those rights. It's vague, and the Supreme Court can decide what they are. But to single-handedly strip the rights of women to make decisions about their body with their doctor is, for me, a fundamental fundamental violation of our rights within the Constitution. I am worried about Griswold uh, v. Connecticut, which was the right to contraception, because that is ultimately what led to Roe v. Wade, um, the decision in Roe v. Wade. And if they do that, then it not only removes the right of the female, it limits the right of even more people of you know the male and the female and, and you know married couple making a conscientious dis- conscientious decision uh, between themselves and their doctors to you know to seek out contraceptives or the use of contraceptives to you know reduce unwanted pregnancies which with Roe being overturned and living in Texas you wouldn't be able to do anything about it at that point and for same sex ser- same sex marriages as well I am, you know, very much a supporter of LGBTQ rights, and I think to strip that would be fundamentally wrong. So I think the Supreme Court, as does most, I think 70% of America today, thinks the Supreme Court has really gone off the rails and has gone from an appellate jurisdiction branch of the government into a super legislative power and has overstepped their bounds. I just don't know if we're going to dedicate a full episode to that. Yeah, to that one topic. There's, yeah. Hmm. Something to consider. So we, we will definitely consider it. If we get, you know, enough requests, we might do something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was that it? Yep, that's it. All okay. right. And with that, Josh, anything from your side? No, nope, nothing. Thank you for joining us. Awesome question reading. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here, buddy. No Chris, problem. anything else? Gosh, no. Um, yeah, uh, looking forward to uh, this next doing this next episode. You know, on uh, climate change, climate change, the environment, and you know how uh, it, it, how we're gonna move forward. All right, with that, I love you guys. Love you, man. <laughs> we're out. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.